Covenant of Grace is a Christian church. Now, what does that mean? People who love God and believe the Bible can draw lines in different places. But at Covenant of Grace, we've decided to draw the line at the Apostles' Creed. It's a very concise creed, and so it certainly doesn't speak to everything we believe or everything that's important about Christianity. But as one of the best, oldest expressions of the Christian faith, we believe it does a great job of defining what it means to be a Christian. The Apostles' Creed is affirmed by the Roman Catholic Church, by Anglicans, Episcopals, Protestants, and the categories of belief within the creed, which we would call systematic theology, are the most significant categories of belief. The creed talks about God, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology. It talks about man, anthropology. It talks about redemption, soteriology. And it talks about life and the church, ecclesiology. Theology is what we believe about God. And the Apostles' Creed affirms that God is one. Christians are monotheists. There are not multiple gods. There is one God. But we also affirm in the creed the Trinity, that God is three persons, equal in power and glory and dignity and eternality, in knowledge and wisdom, everything you can imagine. They're equal. They're of the same substance. And yet, three persons of one God. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then later, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Apostles' Creed also affirms God's nature and his attributes, that he is the creator of heaven and earth the judge of the living and the dead, the one who can forgive sins, the one who can raise from the dead, and the one who gives everlasting life. In the Westminster Confession, chapter 2, it says this, There's but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, and comprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. This is what we believe about God. And to be a Christian, we must affirm about God the things which the Apostles' Creed affirms. One God, three person, equal in all of these attributes, and with all of this uh, power, with this nature that is described within the Creed. The, the Apostles' Creed also speaks to us about anthropology, what we believe about man. And for such a concise creed, it actually says a lot about anthropology. It tells us that we were created. That is, that we're the creatures and not the creator, and that we were created in the image of God for his own pleasure and glory. We are his vessels. We're not equal to the creator in any way. We're created for his purposes and not for our own. We're created in his image, the image of God himself, the creator. And so we have to respect ourselves. We have to respect human life of ours and others accordingly. It also tells us that we're covenantal. In the creed, it says the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. These are things that we affirm. It's not good for man to be alone. God created us for relationship and for fellowship with, it, with him and with one another. God himself is not alone. Remember, three persons, one God. God has always been in eternal and perfect loving fellowship with himself. And so he did not create us to be alone. And he does not work with us alone. God works with us covenantally. The Bible will talk about Adam as our first, as our covenant head. 
and that Adam's fall into sin brought the punishment for sin, not just upon himself, but upon all of mankind. He was our federal head, our representative. And so because of this, all of us are born not neutral or good, but sinful. We are born into rebellion. Now, we will commit our own rebellions. We will commit our own sins. Each of us will. But even if we never did, if you could imagine that, we're still born into sin. We're born into guilt. Not just born with a tendency to sin, though that is true, but also born in sin. We require forgiveness and atonement from conception. And then we compound that guilt by a lifetime of our own sin. And God doesn't just work with us alone, as Adam was our head leading us into sin. So Christ is our new covenant head. The Bible says that just as we all died in one man, Adam, so we all are brought life by one man, Christ. In the same way that Adam represented us and by his unfaithfulness condemned us in unfaithfulness, so Christ represented us and by his righteousness, which can be given to us, imputed to us, then we can really possess righteousness. We can have the legal righteousness that we need before God on the last day, that perfection, which even though it belongs to Christ is credited to us. And we can have uh, experiential righteousness. We can become more holy. We can resist sin. We're able to choose not to sin once we are in Christ. In the creed, we also think about soteriology. That's a little bit of what I just discussed. It's the question of how can people be saved since the punishment for sin, even one sin, is death. And since all of us are born into sin and add our own sins, we are all deserving of death. Paul says in Romans, no, not one is righteous. Now, God is perfectly holy. And so for his part, he cannot fail to punish even a single sin. Every sin that has ever been committed must receive the wrath of God. If God failed to do this, he would no longer be holy. He would no longer be just. And so he would no longer be God. He would just cease to be. All sins must be punished. And God says that the punishment for those sins is death. So we, being born in sin, filled with sin, can never keep God's law perfectly. But in Christ, God provides one who can. He provides a redeemer, one who lives perfectly with respect to the law, perfectly obedient on our behalf. This is Christ the creed talks about. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It's not just that God took on human flesh, but he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He lived in this world. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way as we were, and yet was without sin. And so as he, the perfect one, dies, he dies not for our sins, he dies for the sins of those who call upon him in faith. If you've ever read or seen the movies from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, it's that great uh, event where Aslan is on the stone table and the witch thinks that she has won because she is bringing him to this unjust death. But in a perfectly holy, perfectly just God's economy, that can't happen. And so the stone table of Aslan is broken. And similarly, Christ is able to conquer death. He is able to pass through and persevere through hell because though he receives the punishment of our own sin, it's not his sin. He was the righteous one. And so he conquers death. 
We receive salvation and glory as a reward for his righteousness. We get credit for his account and he gets blame for ours. And that's not fair. Christ deserved life and we deserved death. But it is just because all the sins are paid for and the obedience is rewarded. By Christ's resurrection and ascension, God gives Christ the victory over death and secures that salvation for all of his people. Death is defeated and cannot claim those who are in Christ. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what all that means. Now, this righteousness is not given to us because of good works. It's given to us because of faith. See, good works are contrary to everything I just explained. If we think we could do enough works to outweigh the sin that we've done in our lives, not only are we wrong, but it wouldn't even matter. It's not a question of outweighing the sin. It's a question of paying for the sin. Someone must die for our sin. And so there's nothing we can do other than die until God makes another way. And if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead, we will be saved. It's the heart of Christianity. Finally, the creed talks about the category of ecclesiology and the Christian life, the church and the life that we live in and around it. How do we live and what should we expect knowing what we know about God and mankind and salvation? Since we were created for God's pleasure, it seems obvious that the primary function of our existence is worship. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, this community that God calls his redeemed people into for the sake of worship. Now, there's primary forms of worship. That's Lord's Day worship, uh, the things that we do on Sunday together. There's also family worship, uh, prayer, devotion, scripture reading. These are all commanded uh, things for us to do that are also for our good. They are to the glory of God. The Bible tells us that we're not to forsake the gathering together. We are to be baptized and join a church when we confess faith and believe. We're to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're to approach God boldly and in prayer. These are all sort of active primary forms of worship. But in a sense, all of life is worship. There's these secondary forms of worship, living an obedient life. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the greatest tangible display of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that you can ever do. And so that is a, an act of obedient worship. It's an act that brings glory to God. As we do our work with excellence, as we do our hobbies with excellence, as we are parents and spouses, children, workers, students, athletes with excellence, as we do all things to the glory of God, that itself is a form of worship. And then, of course, as we share the gospel with others in what we say, as we live lives that make that gospel more appealing and more interesting to them, more uh, we make the, the till the soil and make them ready to hear that because there are things about our lives that are so appealing that they would want to hear why our lives are this way. Those are uh, how we should expect to live in light of the other things that the creed uh, teaches us from Scripture. And then also, we're to live as people who know that this life is not all that there is. Uh, When you look at the middle of the creed there, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We recognize the lordship of Christ in all areas, and we recognize that this life is not all that there is. 
So we're going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to recognize our reliance on the Holy Spirit to aid us in this task. And as we do all of those things, we're not just doing them for this life. We're doing them with an eye on the world that is to come. We recognize that there is an eternity ahead of us. And that the greatest thing that a person could ever do is to live out that eternity in the presence of God. And so that has a lot of impacts for how we make decisions and for what matters most to us in this life. It's not the stuff we can get. It's not the temporary enjoyment or the immediate happiness. Those, though, those are wonderful gifts from God. What matters more than those is eternity. Are we dwelling now in the presence of God so that we can expect on that day to dwell with him and then to do so forever? There are a lot of ways that people can uh, decide what it means to be a Christian or not. Ultimately, it's only the Holy Spirit, God himself, who can judge hearts and Jesus himself, who will judge us on the last day. But he does call the church to speak clearly and to tell people uh what is this narrow way? What is this narrow gate that God calls us to pass through? And as a church, we've decided to define those parameters around the Apostles' Creed. Again, we believe more than is in this creed, and we believe some of the things that the creed doesn't speak to are really important. The Nicene Creed unpacks the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ in a way that the Apostles' Creed, just for the sake of brevity, doesn't do. But to be gracious with one another and for the sake of tremendous clarity, when the question is, what does it mean to be a Christian? We say, I believe without hesitation and without reservation, the Apostles' Creed.